Amen. We'll take your Bibles. Turn with me once again to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. What a great day of worship this morning. Amen. Such a great day. So excited about the good word that God has in store for us as we come to the last of our seven letters in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning in Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 through 22. I would say one of the most shocking Probably for us, as we're reading through the Gospels, the most surprising episode in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is early in his ministry, when it's Passover, and he walks into the temple, and going into the outer courts, seeing table after table after table, the entire courtyard of the temple filled with people buying and selling things. Now, I want you to picture this with me. This is a familiar story, but it's really quite shocking when you picture what's happening here. Imagine some out, that was amazing. I I was expecting that at the invitation, but not so quick. So (laughs) imagine some outdoor type of festival or a farmer's market where it's packed and there's table after table after table. If you've ever been to the Middle East specifically and you've gone to a bazaar and you see how packed it is, table after table, merchants who had come in early and they'd set up their tables, everything well organized, and then they were buying and selling. They had their little cash registers where they were taking, receiving money and all of the things set up they were selling. There were live animals there because people were buying animals to sacrifice. Jesus walks in and he sees this and apparently he then walks back out because the text tells us that he goes and he carefully, thoughtfully, this was a premeditated thing, forms a whip. He then goes back into the courtyard with a whip in his hand, running throughout the entire courtyard at the busiest time of the year where thousands were gathered for the Passover, taking that whip and driving out the money changers, driving out the animals, taking the tables, overthrowing them, and taking the money bags and throwing them across the room. You can imagine the chaos of the scene. You can imagine everyone scrambling as a man with a whip was going throughout the temple declaring that the house of his father was to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. Now you look at that moment and you say, what is it that that came over Jesus at that moment. Something happened. Something took him over. Well, the disciples, in thinking of that moment, go to an Old Testament text and quote it when it says, zeal for your father's house will consume me. You say, what is it that overcame Jesus in that moment? The answer is this, it was zeal. He was consumed in that moment by the zeal of the Lord. Now, Jesus is God in the flesh. And so when we see the affections, the emotions of Jesus, we're seeing the exact representation of God the Father. And we know from this, and not just from this, but from all kinds of texts in the Old Testament, our God is a God of zeal. He is a God of deep feelings and deep intensity and deep emotions and deep impassions, the things that God feels, God feels deeply. There is an intensity to our God. There is a depth of passion and fervency in the spirit of the Lord. And do you know, just like with all of the emotions of the Lord, 
It is his desire that our lives be a visual manifestation of his zeal. I mean, Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says that God's desire was to gather together for himself a group of people, here's what it says, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. My favorite passage about zeal is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, when it says this. Paul says to the church, to every one of us, a direct command, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. He really defines for us what zeal is by saying that it is to be fervent in spirit. The word fervent there means to be boiling. Fervency is not simply a representation of our actions. It is a representation of our spirit. It is a boiling spirit. A spirit that is white hot with feeling and affection and passion for the Lord. It is exactly the thing that was missing from the church at Laodicea. You see, the opposite of this type of white, hot, zealous, boiling passion in our spirit would be apathy. You could say it's lukewarm or indifference because you know, when we say the word lukewarm, we're not simply referencing a temperature. It is, it is a state of the heart. A heart that is lukewarm is a heart that is indifferent. It doesn't feel. It doesn't have deep passions. It may have some feelings, but the depth of passion, the depth of the emotion is not there. It is an apathetic heart. And I want you to know that this, this matters to God. The temperature of our spirit, the feel of our heart matters to God. If God is a zealous God, and if God is commanding for us to be a zealous people, to have a boiling heart, white heart, white hot with affection for Jesus Christ, and that is not there, that matters to God. This is the problem that Jesus is addressing in Revelation chapter 3 in the church at Laodicea. Now, if you're there in Revelation 3 verse 14, say amen. Listen to what Jesus says to the church. He says, And to the angel of the church Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you, Jesus says, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I conquer and sit down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, it seems very appropriate 
knowing the way that this letter was started, to find us ending with the, seven le- the seventh and final letter to the churches in Revelation with this specific one. We began this series by looking at Revelation chapter 1, in which we get a picture of Jesus who is ablaze with the glory of God. And then we saw that it is the intention of Jesus for his church to also be ablaze with his glory. That in the same way Jesus is ablaze with glory, so it is the entire church is to be ablaze with the glory of Jesus Christ. We are to be ablaze with his life, ablaze with his love, ablaze with his affection, ablaze with his passion, ablaze, as we saw last week, with his courage. That we are to be the visual picture for all of the world to see who it is that Christ actually is. After all, we are the body of Jesus Christ. And if Christ is ablaze with the life and the passion, the glory of God, so it is the church must be ablaze. And here at the last of these letters, we get a statement to a church that's simply ablaze with nothing. There's just, there's no fire. There's no fervency. There's no passion whatsoever. There's just an apathetic lukewarm heart. And it matters to Jesus. He says in extremely colorful terms that it is disgusting to him when a church that is to be ablaze with the glory of God is instead apathetic and lukewarm and half-hearted. Jesus wants it to be very clear that this is not dependent upon our personality or just the depth of affection that we think we have, or our normal disposition, that it is his desire for everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ to have a white, hot, burning zeal about them when it comes to the things of the Lord. Look at how Jesus describes them in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Now, it's significant to understand the context of Laodicea. This town, although prominent and well-known for many things, is not well-known for its water. Six miles north of Laodicea is Heropolis, which is known for its healing hot natural springs. So people would go from all over the world to Heropolis, and there they would find in these healing baths and healing springs something that would comfort them. You could go just 10 miles east and you could go to Colossae and Colossae is known for its cold, refreshing spring water. And everyone would come there to get cold, refreshing water. Laodicea had no source of water in and of itself, so they had to bring water in. And by the time the water got to Laodicea, no matter where it came from, it came lukewarm and unhealthy. This was a problem. And because of not only the tepid temperature of the water, but the lack of health of the water, what would happen is, is that people would drink the water in Laodicea and get sick. The water was good for nothing. It wasn't hot, therefore it didn't have any healing power. It wasn't cold, so it wasn't refreshing. Now when Jesus says in verse 15, I would rather you either be cold or hot, he's not saying this. I'd rather you be a Christian or or just not a Christian. Just either one, just make up your mind. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, the hot water is good because it's healing. The cold water is good because it's refreshing. If you were hot, you'd be great. If you were cold, you'd be great. But you, church, are just like the water in your city. You're just good for nothing. You say, well, certainly Jesus isn't saying that. It's exactly what he says in Matthew 5, 16, when he talks about the fact that we are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, it is good for nothing. It is possible for us to come to a place in our lives in which our hearts have grown grown cold towards the things of the Lord and the result is that we are neither hot nor cold, we're not healing and we're not refreshing to anyone else around us. No one is affected by our relationship with the Lord. No one is moved by conversations with us. No one is moved by watching the way in which God is affecting our lives and our decisions and our relationships. In other words, when it comes to our effect on others for the kingdom of God, We're like the salt that's lost its saltiness. It's the lukewarm water, which is good for nothing. I think if we're honest, all of us would say, our natural disposition is not that we wake up every morning with boiling spirits for Jesus. Can we just acknowledge that this is not our normal, constant disposition? That, that we don't have to work hard to be lukewarm. We're just kind of always white hot for Jesus. I, I think I'm getting no response. But that, that's how it is for me. I'll just be honest here. Maybe you're different. Uh, I find this to be something I have to fight for. That left to my own self, I'm not going to drift towards a boiling spirit. I'm going to drift away from a boiling spirit. The sad part is this. When it comes to our own lives and when it comes to the church as a whole, I think you would have to acknowledge that a boiling hot spirit is more the exception than the rule. Would you acknowledge that in your life a boiling hot spirit for the Lord is often more the exception than the rule? I think we could all agree with what John Stott says about this letter. Listen to this. He says, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church at the beginning of the 21st century than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. It's sad, but certainly we acknowledge it's true. Now, given the fact that all of us struggle with this, and given the fact that our natural disposition is to go away from the Lord and to grow cold, but given the fact that God's desire is for us as a church, meaning starting with every individual, for us to be ablaze with zeal, I want to talk this morning about the cause and the cure for a lukewarm heart. The cause and the cure for a lukewarm heart. Let's look at, first of all, the cause of a lukewarm heart. The cause of a lukewarm heart. I think we could define it in one hyphenated word. The cause of a lukewarm heart is self-deception. Self-deception, write that down. What is the cause of a lukewarm heart? I think the same cause for their lukewarm heart is the same cause of our lukewarm heart, and it is self-deception. A lukewarm heart always has, at its core, and grows out of a wrong, overestimated view of ourselves. Now, Laodicea is known for a few things. First of all, they're known for their banking. They were the wealthiest part of Asia Minor. They were the banking commercial capital of the area. They were prominent. They were wealthy. They were known for their finances. They were also known for their clothing manufacturing. 
A lot of their money came from the manufacturing of clothing. So uh, they were known as a bit of a fashion place. And because of all their manufacturing of clothing, they were known for their clothes, and a lot of wealth came in from that. They were also known for their medical school, specifically a solve that they had created to be a cure for certain types of blindness. And people would come from all over the world to the medical school to get what they believed was this healing solve to go on their eyes. I think a great description of the church and the town of Laodicea is found in AD 60 when there was a massive earthquake that went throughout this region. Many towns were destroyed. And Laodicea was the only town destroyed that did not receive any financial help from Rome. The reason is is because they didn't want any financial help from Rome and they believed that they could take care of it themselves and they did. They're independent. They're, they're self-sufficient. They don't need anybody else's help. And so they say to Rome, listen, we've got it. We've saved up enough money. We're fine on our own. And all of that has created within the people of Laodicea what is honestly something that often happens in us as well, and that is a sense of self-sufficiency. That we just don't need anyone else. We have what we need. That left to our own self and left to our own resources, we're going to be simply fine. You see, this is exactly what it says in verse 16. It says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And look at verse 17. Verse 17 starts with the word for. This is the reason. What is the reason in which they're lukewarm? Here is the reason. Because you say this, I am rich, I have prospered, and here's the key, and I need nothing. This is their view of themselves. Now, when we read that, it feels a bit arrogant to us. And maybe even if we walk with the Lord, puts a little fear in our hearts because it's a fearful thing to look at the Lord and say, I don't need anything. But I think if we're honest, we would say that our hearts are often like that, where we live moment by moment throughout the day, acting as if we're sufficient in and of ourselves, and we don't need anything else. And the way I can prove that we often live like that is the small degree which we come to the Lord with prayer and time in the Word. If we thought we were desperate for help, then we would constantly be going to the Lord for help. But our hearts are much like the hearts of those in Laodicea, that because of how we have prospered, because of the culture in which we live, we often have a tendency, whether we verbally say it or not, I'm good, I have what I need. You see, the problem with them is they've become self-reliant, and they're self-reliant because they're self-deceived. They really believe that they don't need anything else, and the truth is their wealth has led to self-confidence, and the self-confidence has led to spiritual complacency complacency. They just do not feel deep inside of their soul that they need the Lord. And you say, what what is the source? What is the cause of a lukewarm heart? It is always this. The idea, whether clearly in the front of our mind or somewhere hidden in the back of our mind, that we just don't need the Lord moment by moment by moment. Because we get in this place in which we do not think we need him constantly, we grow distant from him, and our distance from him always leads to spiritual complacency. I mean, think about it in terms of Revelation 1. If Jesus is the fire, if Jesus is the one ablaze with glory, and we are simply to be ablaze with his glory, then our proximity to the fire determines the heat in which we radiate. That the more distant we grow from him, the more cold our hearts become. 
But this is exactly the problem. It is not that complicated. It's a self-deception, believing they're okay, believing they don't need the Lord, which has led them to simply not remain close to the Lord. And if I'm honest, just about my own heart and thinking about the people that I've talked to and the times in which I counsel, it's always as simple as this, that there is something that has entered into your life a sense of self-deception or self-sufficiency that has drawn you away from the Lord and your lukewarm heart is a result of the fact that you are not near the blazing fire of Jesus' presence. That is the cause of a lukewarm heart. Self-deceptive reality that I just don't need anything. You say, what is the, what is the cure for a lukewarm heart? Well, that's really the point of this letter. I mean, Jesus is, is showing them very carefully that this is the problem. They have a lukewarm heart, and he's pointing out how wrong they are in their estimation. Again, verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But the real story is this, not realizing what is the truth, not realizing that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I think it's fascinating, given what Laodicea was famous for, that he takes the things they think they had the most and tells them they actually have the opposite. Listen, you you think you're well-clothed. I see you as naked. You think you have a cure for blindness. I see you as blind. You think you are wealthy. I see you as poor. You have completely misunderstood yourself. You do not have a right estimation of yourself. You are an incredibly, deeply, at your very core, needy person. You have nothing without me. The truth is, is he has to bring them to that place to see their neediness in order for them to ever find the cure for a lukewarm heart. You say, well, if the cause of a lukewarm heart is self-deception, meaning you don't think you need anything and therefore you grow distant from Jesus, The cure for a lukewarm heart is more of Jesus. What is the cure for a lukewarm heart? It's it's Jesus. Now, I have to tell you, I wanted the answer to be a bit different. I I, I did. And I'm a Jesus guy, you know that. But I, I I was hoping I could give you something a little bit more profound. Some little pithy statement that you would always remember and you could say, boy, I remember when Pastor Josh said the cure for Louis and just give something great. But I couldn't because from beginning to end, Jesus is saying the reason your heart is lukewarm is because distance from me and the only way to get it back hot is getting close to me. The cure for a lukewarm heart is Jesus. And I guarantee you, when you walk through times in your life in which you are cold and apathetic to the Lord, it is because there is distance from Jesus. Now, this is an incredible passage of Scripture. I don't know how many times I've read this and studied this and even preached it. But I found myself incredibly encouraged this week by the pictures of Jesus that are here. This passage has really increased my love and affection for Jesus Christ because I, I, I think what he does here is what I wasn't expecting. I'm expecting him to go heavy on the rebuke, to come down hard after all I've done for you and all of this, and he just doesn't go that direction. In the midst of this harsh reality in which he is reminding them everything that they are not, there is in this text a loving call and a summons to come closer. And the reason is, is because, listen, Jesus wants you to get a fresh picture of him that will then fuel the fire in your heart for him and draw you into him. He's trying to draw you closer. 
And he reveals himself very quickly here in, in four different ways, surprising ways. And I want us to look at these together. Write these down. The first one is this. He reveals himself as the sovereign Lord. He reveals himself as a sovereign Lord. Write these down. Meditate on these this week. He is the sovereign Lord, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen. I love that. We know what the word amen means. It means that which is true and that which is certain. It is the final word. When I'm preaching and you say amen, sadly a little rare, then what you're saying is that's true. I agree with that. By the way, I give you full freedom to do that, all right? If you ever just wanted to throw out an amen, that would be fine. I wouldn't get mad at that. Like, there wouldn't be church discipline for that. Thank you, Lynn, over here. Any others? Amen. Uh, It's just, I don't want to beg for them, but, you know, if you wanted to give out a few of those, that would be great. So what we're saying is, I believe that. That's true. That's good. Amen. Thank you. Amen Amen has the final word. Now, what I love about this is that the word amen is personified and used as a noun. Look at it. The words of the amen. Jesus is the amen. He is that which is, that was a great place for an amen. I think, I'm just going to talk about that a little bit more. Jesus is the amen. amen. You could do this every week and it would be fine. And then if you did it, the person next to you, he's the final word, he's it. He's what's true, he's what's certain. I, what an amazing thing, Jesus is the amen. If I told you, give me 20 names for Jesus, you probably wouldn't come up with this. And, but it says, this is the words of the amen. He is the one that is certain. He is the one that is true. Jesus is the final word. There is no truth and no certainty outside of Jesus Christ. He is the amen. He is the, oh, about to start something here. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the faithful one. He is the right one. He is the one that never changes, that is always committed, that is always consistent. In the midst of everything in your life that is changing, there is one steady and consistent thing and only one steady and consistent thing that is the same day after day after day, and it is Jesus Christ. He is the beginning of God's creation. The word beginning there means he is the architect of God's creation. He is the author of God's creation. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things, meaning you exist because of him, and you exist for him, and you continue to exist and are sustained because of him. He's really making the point of Romans eleven thirty six, which says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. The point is this is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all things. And listen to me, your life has zero meaning without Jesus. Zero meaning. There is no life to be found outside of Jesus. And as the sovereign Lord, he has the right to demand from you your full attention and your full heart. It is right for him to say, love me with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. He is the sovereign Lord of creation. You exist because of him. He is the final word. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the amen. And he says, because of who I am, I am asking you to come and give your whole heart to me. When you think about it in that terms, you think about what a sad and pitiful thing it is to have a half-hearted affection for Jesus. You exist 
because of him and for him. He is the sovereign Lord. But look at another picture of Jesus. He is also, in this text, the wise counselor. I think you expected the sovereign Lord. This is the book of Revelation. This is a key theme. But he is the wise counselor. Write that down. Look at verse 18. Back to 17, he says, you say I'm rich and I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that the reality is you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And listen to his response. I I want you to see the sweetness and the kindness in this. So Jesus says, so here's how I counsel you. I'm going to counsel you. Let's, Let's sit down and let me counsel you on what is the right response. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you actually may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Listen, you are poor and you are naked and you are blind. And all of the things that you have and all of the things you're purchasing can never solve those problems. Your clothes can cover your body, but they cannot cover your shame. Your solve can take care of the physical eyes, but it cannot take care of of the spiritual eyes. You can accumulate all kinds of earthly treasure for you, but you will never have true riches. And when Jesus says, come and buy from me, he's not saying we can purchase these things. He's talking to a commercial city, and he's saying, instead of going out and spending all of your resources trying to get all these things that you think are gonna satisfy you, I want to give you some wise counsel. Stop wasting your life. And come to me. Like you'll come to me and find true riches that won't wear out. And you'll find clothes that will cover the shame. That's, that's what needs to be covered. What else is going to cover your shame but Jesus Christ? He says if you come to me, you will find that your sins will be clean. I will cover you with my righteousness. And the shame that you are bearing, which is so heavy upon you, will be covered by me. And your eyes will be opened. And you will see life as it really is. And you will see me and all of my goodness and all of my kindness and all of my glory. And I just love this picture of Jesus stepping as a sovereign Lord and saying, I demand your allegiance. And then stepping back and saying, listen, I also want to come to you as a wise counselor and just say this. There is nothing in life more foolish than living life without Jesus Christ. You will absolutely, utterly, in every way, waste your life if Jesus is not at the center. So in the kindness and wisdom of a counselor, he says, here's my counsel. Come and find everything you need in me. Don't waste your life. He's a sovereign Lord. He's a wise counselor. Look at the third picture. He's a loving father. He's a loving father. Verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is a picture of of a father. It is a father's responsibility to reprove and discipline and to do so in the context of love. So I, I just want you to feel the affection of Jesus. He says, listen, you exist because of me, therefore give me your whole heart. He then says, can I just tell you how foolish it would be for you to live your whole life and miss me? Listen, come and get everything you're looking for from me. And then he says this, know this, I love you. I love you. I've given my life for you. 
And am I going to speak harshly to you here and reprove you? Yes, I have to because you're living a foolish life and you're wasting your life. And so I will say to you, you are not the person you think you are. You are not self-sufficient. You cannot survive without me. You are pitiable, wretched, poor, naked, and blind. Yes, but I'm saying that to you because I love you, and I want you to experience the fullness of life that I have to offer. And in the same way, the father sits down with the son at the beginning of the book of Proverbs and says, Son, I want to instruct you in the right and the pure way. So it is Jesus Christ is saying to here, Listen, as a loving father, I will tell you the truth so that I might bring you to myself. In order for you to ever come to the Father, someone has to first tell you that you're an orphan. Someone has to first tell you that there is nothing that can take the place of a loving Heavenly Father, and you have to have a loving Heavenly Father. And so Jesus is summoning you out of his love, saying, hear my heart, know my heart, I love you deeply and passionately, and as a loving Father, I want you to come in to me. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He comes to us as a sovereign Lord, a wise counselor, a loving father. Let me give you the last one. He comes to us as an intimate friend. An intimate friend, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's such a familiar verse if, You've been in church much of your life. You certainly are familiar with this verse. I will say that as I meditate on this verse this week, it became sweeter and sweeter than it ever has been before. Because I see the way in which Jesus is inviting us in, and I see that this is someone who is not just demanding at a sovereign Lord, although he has the right to do it, but he is sitting there as a wise counselor saying, this is the right thing to do. And then he comes to us as a loving heavenly father and then at the very end says, listen, I'm also coming to you and pleading with you as a friend and I, I, want, I want to come in. What an amazing picture of Jesus Christ standing at the door of your heart, knowing that the only way you will ever experience life is for you to have life in Jesus Christ, knowing that proximity to him matters more than anything else, closeness to him, and his response to that is simply this. I just, I wanna come in, and and if you will open the door, And allow me to come in. Here's what he says. I I want to eat with you and you with me. I I do have to say I prefer the King James Version when it says, I will sup with you. You know, this idea of eating together, and you see this a lot in the Gospels, is a picture of intimacy. It is a picture of friendship. He's not just saying, I want to come in and take over, which he does. He's the sovereign Lord. He's not just saying, I want to come in and teach you the right way. He does. He's a wise counselor. He's not just coming in and saying, I want to love you, which he does as a good father. He's saying, I want to come in and be intimate with you. I I want to befriend you. You will find greater intimacy in me than you will in anyone else. I I want friendship and depth of relationship with you. A picture of Jesus we do not often see. We think about the disciples in the Gospels laying on the bosom of Jesus Christ as they're reclining at the table. And what Jesus is saying is, I want to come in because that's what I want. And I don't know what your picture of Jesus is. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about Jesus. But all four of these pictures are a right, healthy picture of Jesus. 
And that last one of an intimate friend who is longing to be close to you and is longing to walk with you, who is longing to hear everything that is going on in your life is the one who is knocking at the door, not as a Roman soldier demanding entrance, but as a loving friend who just longs to be with you. And my fear is that if you've only ever seen Jesus as a sovereign Lord, you know what? You will have less affection for him. But when you see him as a Lord and as a counselor, as a friend, as a father, you begin to have your heart warmed up and you simply take one step closer to him. And as you take one step closer, you take one step closer to the heat of his presence and you take another step and another step and another step and all of a sudden you find after moment of moment of opening the door to him, your heart is boiling with love for him. You see, what I've found in my life is this, is that the way in which we get a boiling heart for Jesus is we don't make a decision that I'm gonna have a boiling heart for Jesus and all of a sudden it's just boiling hot. It happens this, when I open the door right now and then I open the door tomorrow and then I open the door the next day. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more our hearts burn with passion for him. So if you're suffering from a lukewarm heart, what do you do? You zealously repent, as he says in verse 19, and you simply open the door. Listen, there, there, are, there are no secrets here. The reality of walking with Jesus is moment by moment acknowledging you have nothing without Jesus, no goodness, no life, and you simply keep asking him to come in. And it begins this morning. I pray by God's grace, if it's the first time or if it's the thousandth time, that you would again say, Lord, I don't want a lukewarm heart. I repent of a lukewarm heart because it's sin. I open my heart again to you, and I ask that you would come in. I want you to come. I want a boiling zeal for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.